0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Hi, I'm Azra Zaya, AFP President and CEO. And it's my pleasure to welcome to PeaceCon 2020, Darren Walker, President of the Ford Foundation, a global philanthropic leader in building a just, fair and peaceful world with opportunity for all. Welcome, Darren.
0: Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here and grateful for the invitation.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: I'm sorry I can't hear you.
1: I think we're having just a little technical difficulty. Can you hear me now? Now I can
0: hear you just fine. Wonderful.
1: Well, I was just saying, Darren, we are so thrilled for you to join our most global and our largest PeaceCon ever, framed around the theme, Pandemics, Peace and Justice, Shaping What Comes Next. So we have with us today an amazing virtual audience of thousands of peace builders from all over the world who are absolutely eager to hear from you. So uh, for our online audience, I'll kick off the conversation now, but we're going to make sure to have time for questions from all of you. So I encourage our online viewers to post questions throughout the discussion using the chat box function located just below the video player, on the USIP event page or on the PeaceCon conference webpage. So with that, uh, let us begin. We have a fireside chat, but I'm sorry we don't have a hearth uh, to offer you. uh, Just uh, the virtual warmth of Zoom. So uh, Darren, uh, just wonderful to have you here. And you have written so eloquently about the journey from generosity to justice. Now, how does this message apply to the world confronting us today with the cascading disruptions of a global pandemic, this national and global reckoning for racial justice, and worsening inequality with hundreds of millions uh, worldwide being pushed into extreme poverty?
0: I think the moment we are in um, is a moment of grave consequences if you care about peace, justice, um, and the mission of the Alliance. And I just have to say, I was reading um, the Alliance for Peacebuilding, your organization, your wonderful organization's vision for the world, a world where each person feels secure, dignified, and included. A world where people build peace and manage conflict without violence. What a noble, courageous, and inspiring vision. And the moment we are in, the times we are living through uh, desperately needs the members of your network and this organization to be strong, durable, and resilient. Because to get from generosity to justice is going to require of all of us a recognition that we will be living in a new world. I see the world divided and time and space in two dimensions. There was a BC world, before coronavirus world, that existed until recently. That world is over, we will never return to the BC world. We must now prepare ourselves to engage in a post-coronavirus world. Uh, In the PC world, uh, we are going to have to leave behind some of the practices and structures and systems that have made uh, the the, the moment we're living through uh, so starkly, uh, cl- the clarity of this moment around inequality. So the requirement for those of us, particularly those of us with privilege, those of us who have benefited uh, during this period of time, including the many people who have benefited uh, during a time of a pandemic, uh, we are going to have to move beyond charity, beyond generosity, to dignity and justice. And in order to do that, we have to ask ourselves not just what can we give back, but what must we be willing to give up in order to have a world that is more peaceful, a world that is uh, more uh, a world where people live with dignity um and there is more equity and equality in the world
1: well thank you so much for articulating that darren and for recognizing you know what you described as the noble vision of, of the alliance this network of 130 plus members working in 181 countries uh i have to really commend you and ford foundation for such a strong emphasis on structural inequality. And, you know, we've seen this exposed and exacerbated to such a degree, domestically and internationally. But as we hope we can begin to see the end of this crisis, the PC world, as you described it, you know, do you have thoughts on how we can recover in a way that really takes on these long unaddressed, structural challenges?
0: Yes, first we have to uh, uh, realize that the challenges that we face are structural. They are systemic. They are not challenges that can be solved with Band-Aid approaches. They are not challenges that can be solved through philanthropic giving. Yes, philanthropic giving is critical, to getting us to solutions, but is woefully inadequate to do the work of governments um, and policymakers. So the systems beginning with our economic systems have to be examined and interrogated and rebuilt in a way that creates more shared prosperity. We have economic systems, and as a capitalist, um, I say proudly, um, but I say wearily because I believe that uh, capitalism um, is uh, skating on thin ice in this world because it has not produced uh, and it has not delivered on its potential. And that is because it has been distorted. It has been distorted to compound the privilege of the already privileged. And it has been distorted to uh, compound the disadvantage of the already disadvantaged. And so we have to look at our economic systems and examine them and put in place the kinds of policies that will ensure fairer distribution uh, of the benefits of our uh, economies Uh, We have to look at, uh, as we think about the global systems, uh, the ways in which we bring greater fairness, um, the ways in which we ensure more uh, empowerment and autonomy and agency for uh, nations in the global south. And we have to examine the underlying root causes of much of the problems of today, which are the isms of the world. Uh, the ways in which racism and the legacy of colonialism, the way in which patriarchy and the degradation of women and girls systemically, culturally, uh, harm not only uh, our our societies broadly, but our economic productivity. Uh, so there are many ways in which I think we have to really address these problems, but um, we, we, we can't believe, we can't accept that we're going to see the real kind of changes we need uh, with the kinds of Band-Aid approaches that some philanthropies um, and many governments uh, seem uh, to be willing to take.
1: I think what you articulated is so important. And, and we've tried uh, at AFP to, to make a parallel point with respect to COVID response and recovery. Obviously, there are the public health dimensions, you know, the the need to care for and um, really deal with that health dimension, but all of the other aspects need to be addressed as well. You know, whether it's economic dislocation, you know, the shadow pandemic of gender-based violence, or armed conflicts um, being fueled by these underlying fractures and deficiencies. I think that gets us to um, maybe looking at more closely at the situation at home, and the United States of America. uh, You have often said that America is not just a country. It's an idea. And as we face a world that is increasingly besieged by authoritarian and illiberal forces, we're talking a lot at PeaceCon about the destabilizing impact of disinformation, misinformation. do you think our long established paradigms for promoting democracy and human rights also need a reboot or need to evolve as well?
0: Well, I think they need to evolve, but we have to understand the context in which we're living in which democracy is expected to thrive. So we're living in a time when there is growing economic inequality we're living in a time when hate and division have been commodified and monetized for tremendous profit. So let us be clear. We live in a time when there is great profit to be made from manufacturing, division, and hate. And that is a hard environment for democracy to thrive. Because what these twin uh, dimensions do, these twin vectors of the disinformation, the monetization of hate and division, growing inequality do is they are harmful to the very heart of democracy, the beating heart of democracy is hope, is optimism, is a belief in the future. And these two vectors asphyxiate that. They smother hope. They literally take the breath out of the body of democracy. And so, It is, uh, without addressing these two realities, it is very hard to imagine how we can have a thriving and vibrant democracy if people do not trust democratic institutions, if people believe that the systems, the economic system especially, is rigged to benefit uh, the, uh, the people who are already Uh, benefiting exorbitantly and the sad reality is where if we are to be honest with ourselves is there is a reason for people around the world and certainly in our home country to be disaffected because they have not been served by our economic system they are not being served by many of the institutions whose behaviors have been distorted to reinforce uh, and serve uh, the people who are already the most privileged, uh, the most well-off in society.
1: So true. Uh, I think it's, it's just impossible to try to consider defending democracy, restoring the resilience of democracy without looking at that broader context. I wanted to um, congratulate you, Darren, on winning uh, very recently the Wall Street Journal 2020 Philanthropy Innovator Award. But I found it rather interesting that you've said you'd rather be known as a change maker than an innovator. Now, I was wondering, could you share with us how your own personal journey shaped your role as a change maker and what that means to you?
0: Well, for me, I think the idea of change has been the signature of, of my life, and the fact that I lived in a country where, even though I was born uh, poor in a charity hospital and, and raised, um, in in not the the best of circumstances, uh, I always uh, learned on that journey and believed on that journey, first, that my country was cheering me on. Uh, In spite of the obstacles I may have faced, I always felt that America wanted me to succeed and that the inputs to that success, whether it be in 1965 when a young woman showed up um, in front of a little shotgun house where my mother and I lived uh, on a dirt road in Ames, Texas, population uh, 1,200 to tell us about a new government program President Johnson was establishing called Head Start and uh, asking if I could be signed up for the first class of Head Start in 1965, all the way to college and law school where I got to go on Pell Grants. and privately funded scholarships through to my time working in Harlem um, at the Community Development Organization there, the Abyssinian Development Corporation, which was funded in part by the Ford Foundation, I have always been propelled by uh, uh, programs and policies and people who had big ideas for change and change for the betterment. Of society, and when I think about my own journey and what has really uh, impacted me, uh, yes, uh, we all have training. And looking at your bio, you've got lots of degrees and lots of credentials. And but I bet you have those experiences too that you bring with you to your job was today. And for me, I think back to when I was 13 years old, my first job as a busboy in a restaurant, and that experience left an indelible mark on my psyche because the job which is the lowest job uh in the on the totem pole if you will of um of the the work in a restaurant is um is about being in a room where food and uh resources are visible and there is much bounty to be had and uh, your job is to be invisible. My job was to be invisible, to be discreet, to expect no one to acknowledge my presence um, and to take away the things that the guests didn't want and to do it uh, as quietly uh, and in as um, an almost invisible way uh, as I could. Um, and that experience really uh, Stuck with me. And uh, today, I think about our work at Ford and I think about the change that we need to have in the world. And we need to change this world so that more people are not invisible, so that more people do not feel invisible, do not feel as though they don't matter, do not feel that. Uh, those with bounty, those with privilege, uh, do not extend to them dignity, basic dignity, human dignity. Um, And so the change that I wanna fight for, and I know the members of your network and AFP are fighting for, is is to have a world where people live with dignity. Um, It is not uh, an unreasonable thing, an unattainable thing, um, a thing that is an idea that is not achievable—it is absolutely achievable. But in order for that world to occur, we are going to have to change the world.
1: It's such an inspiring call to action, Darren. And you know, it is so true that I think for for us, for you know, looking at the eight decade plus legacy of your foundation. It really comes down to that fundamental question of of human dignity. Uh, You spoke also very uh, powerfully about the need to to reject band-aid approaches, and and you mentioned how smart and bold public policy uh, initiatives made such a difference in your life and your journey. I wonder, though, if we can turn back to um, private philanthropy. and. Where you see, you know, bold change, big ideas as necessary to to really meet the challenges of of this uniquely difficult moment.
0: Well, I think private philanthropy has a role to play, and I feel incredibly lucky to um, be able to serve as as the head of the Ford Foundation, um, an institution that. I I believe has uh, done some very important uh, things and and made tremendous advances in the world. But like most philanthropists, um, have also made some big mistakes and we have learned from those mistakes. And I hope that, and one of the things I talk about as a foundation with eight decades of experience is to share uh, the lessons of the journey of the Ford Foundation. So hopefully, uh, new donors won't uh, won't uh, make the same mistakes we made. But I do believe some of those mistakes and some of those behaviors are very much a part of what I'm seeing uh, in in modern philanthropy. One is uh, something that uh, James Baldwin said many years ago um, about the the confluence of of power uh, and money and ignorance uh, that that the convergence of these three things um, is a a very toxic uh, reality. And and we see that with donors who often think that because they have been successful um, in some domain that they uh, also, uh, if simply Uh, if they were just listened to, uh, the problem of whatever, fill in the blank, would be, um, the solution would be found. Um, And so I think uh, the kind of top-down, arrogant uh, philanthropy, um, regrettably, uh, is still a part of the landscape. Uh, I believe that we, as philanthropists, have to um, heed the words of Martin Luther King. He said in 1968 uh, the following, philanthropy is commendable, but it should not allow the philanthropist to overlook the economic injustice which makes philanthropy necessary. And so what Dr. King was saying to philanthropists was Uh, Interrogate yourselves first, uh, before you interrogate uh, the poor, uh, the uh, disaffected, uh, the dispossessed. Think about your own behavior as a philanthropist vis-a-vis this community who you are missioned to help. And I think that what that means is that we have to be more humble We have to be better listeners. We have to center uh, our nonprofit partners, the communities we seek to uh, serve and help. We have to be proximate. Uh, We have to uh, not in our grant making treat our grantees as contract workers, but treat them as partners fund them uh, with general operating support and unrestricted support because they best know how to deploy the capital and are most proximate to the challenge. So philanthropy, I think, can do great things. And we're seeing philanthropy do great things. Many of the efforts coming um, out of this new generation of philanthropists, people like Lorreen Powell Jobs uh, or uh, Mackenzie Scott, Uh, and many others. I have been so impressed with the focus on justice, uh, the focus on issues of gender um, and patriarchy um, and taking on courageous uh, fights uh, against systems and systemic uh, barriers uh, that will not fall easily, but without uh, addressing them, we will not be able to find uh, sustainable solutions.
1: Well, I think you might have heard a collective cheer all over the world when you mentioned the need for general operating support uh, from private philanthropic funders. It's it's really this issue of funding flexibility, particularly in the wake of the Absolutely. devastating impact of the pandemic. It's it's really. A moment absolutely like to
0: and you know this is from your many years I mean at and yeah. when you were in government and out of government I mean this is the critical issue and you know this this year this this horrific cataclysmic uh, calamity of this pandemic has for Ford um, reminded us of how Far we have to go? I mean, I think as as a foundation, we made a commitment several years ago. Okay. We moved from twenty one percent to seventy seven percent this year of general operating support. We doubled um, the overhead because, of course, you still need project support. But if you're going to do project support, pay your overhead mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. and pay the overhead and administrative costs that it actually takes to manage your project. But but the good news is here we uh we and a number of other foundations and philanthropists started a campaign and over 800 foundations have signed on to that campaign and and part of it was to say if you have in this year project support release the terms of those of that project support make it general operating support do everything you can to uh to release the constraints that make it harder for organizations like your network members to do their good work, and my hope is, you know, what I'm hoping for is that that many of them will say, well, you know, um, maybe we can we can use this year, this COVID year, as we go into a PC world. This is when, going back to our mm-hmm. previous um, uh, vignette there. If some of these things in the in the BC world, like you know, this this narrowly defined uh, uh, project support and contracts in the PC world, we can be more uh, uh, relaxed about that and allow the organizations and the people closest to the problems to be able to be funded uh, sufficiently to actually do their jobs.
1: Well, um, you have really the, the support and the gratitude of, of our network, Darren, in, in making this point and this, this demand for you know, real adaptation to the PC world a, a reality. Now, you, you mentioned those closest to the problem, and you know, I would highlight that you know, in the Alliance for Peacebuilding, we put a strong emphasis on local leadership at the community level to really shape International policy and program responses that are largely developed, you know, to this day in the global north. So, I wanted to ask with Ford's scope of work internationally how do you see the balance between supporting international NGOs with incredible capacity, multi mandated expertise, the ability to tackle issues regionally or globally, as well as those local actors? who are, as you said, closest to the ground in terms of really moving the needle on social justice, uh, governance, and taking on inequality.
0: So I think that this is uh, one of the fundamental challenges in development and the global work around human rights. um, And that is a recognition that we need both, Uh that we need strong uh, regional international actors uh, like many members of your network Mm -hmm. uh, who provide an invaluable service uh, and over uh, some of them over decades have been um, essential to being able to sustain uh, peace to reduce conflict um, and strife um, around the world I think the question is balance. And I think we certainly have a balance of uh, uh, an imbalance, in my view, uh, over uh, many decades at Ford, where we have not sufficiently funded uh, those local organizations. And some of this is rooted, if we're to be completely honest, uh, in the kind of post colonial. Uh, development uh, ideology that existed. Again, I will speak for my institution because the Ford Foundation, in many ways, epitomized some of that thinking um, in our own practices. And what I mean by that is, as we, in the 1960s or 70s, uh, you wouldn't have found a Ford Foundation office. And, and at that time, we had 20 plus offices around the world led by anyone other than an American or a European. Um, you wouldn't, I mean, there was a sort of an unwritten rule that um, the grant making was to be done by Americans and, and, and Europeans. And so that kind of thinking, uh, I believe, was deeply harmful long term to the health uh, and the power dynamic um, it was not until 2000 really that you started to see the emergence of local leaders certainly in philanthropy at places like ford or rockefeller actually heading the offices um, it wasn't until 2000 that the ford foundation could look across our offices and and see mostly uh, africans heading african offices um and and that is something that as we then turn to the kinds of grant making we did we did not uh support sufficiently the development of indigenous leadership uh indigenous ngos and that indigenous infrastructure that we believe is essential to sustaining uh, the work. And so we have absolutely, if I'm to be totally uh, frank and candid, our bias is towards those uh, organizations. Because we have in our offices, uh, we have the first Afro-Brazilian. I mean, again, it, it, hard to believe, but here we are in Brazil since 1962. Um, and um Never an Afro-Brazilian, the majority of the population. Um, but we understand why, because of the historic uh legacy of racism in that country and how it is then manifests to the to the to disadvantage uh, people of African descent and indigenous people. So I don't want to position these as oppositional ideas, uh, you know, global NGOs or regional NGOs versus uh local we need both and uh we just need to make sure that as the ecosystem of philanthropy is considered that there is uh, an appropriate balance
1: i i really appreciate your emphasis on the balance darren and in getting out of a zero-sum mindset but also your candor in describing ford foundation's journey Um, I have to say it really strikes a chord. It's a journey we're still on. I mean, I will tell you, I mean, those are right now,
0: you know, when we all of our programs were run out, out of the international programs were led from New York. Mm. And when I became president, I said, you know, how do we get out of this paradigm? You know, we and lots of others used to have, you know, we called our offices outside of New York, the field offices um the the lingo of this whole i mean the language is absolutely appalling in my view um but programmatically to say all right we want our woman our work on women and girls uh in the south not to be led from new york as it has historically been but let's let's so what I said was let's have the program be led from one of the Africa offices. So it's led by an amazing woman, Nicolette Naylor, from the uh, Johannesburg office. But but culturally at the foundation to get people to say, actually, we have to reorganize ourselves so that this work will be led from an African office. And we in New York will be on Africa time to to work with the Africa offices, to and it has just been a process. It's not that, that people are um, are are resistant at all. It's just that the whole the whole structure and the and the culture culture of 50 years of programming this way have just accreted in a way in which you have to be vigilant to actually implement this. You can't naively just say, oh, we're going to just have it be run out of Johannesburg. Let's go on with our... No, you have to actually be vigilant to monitor that it can be effectively led from Johannesburg and that the power dynamic of headquarters versus the, 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 the international offices uh, doesn't undermine that
1: it's really inspiring to hear darren and and we've you know we face some of the same um, challenges and opportunities with doing an online event but then do we center this around eastern standard time on the east coast versus truly making this global and you know thanks to some really creative work by my team we've been able to open things up so we can you know get out of that get out of that frame and and be more inclusive. Absolutely, and you're
0: going to, and people will have access to this after today. So you're, I mean, this is one of the ways in which technology can help solve, you know, the problems of time and space.
1: Um, What, what you said really strikes a chord as well for our audience, because, you know, we've had some very candid conversations today about racism and privilege and peace building and the need to really live our values within our organizations. So what role do you see philanthropy needing to play in embracing and advancing DEI?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a tough one because you know, <laughs> philanthropy is not a sector that I would say, has any particular credibility on the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it is hard to throw rocks from a glass house. And, uh, you know, at the Ford Foundation, we literally have a glass house, as you know. And I have said to my colleagues, as we look at our own practices, uh, the uh, challenge of living our values um, and 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 I it starts with the board and and really looking at and examining uh, the diversity of the board and and the ways in which the norms and practices uh, and policies of the foundation ensure that you are, we have diversity uh, I will say, you know, I have been very fortunate, but it is you know. So let's just look at the Ford board. The Ford board is a majority women, people of color, international. Um, that is not by happenstance. Um, there is intentionality. So leadership must be intentional and vigilant, and genuinely, authentically a believer, uh, because there is a lot of what I call performative acts, and those where you have seen them, I know, uh, a lot of performative acts uh, in the wake of the murders this year and uh, all of the conversations globally about the movement for Black Lives. Uh, But I think uh, as I have managed uh, the, at Ford, uh, uh, it, it is it requires uh, an ongoing monitoring system, and it, it requires um, the carrots and sticks, the incentive structures, to ensure you get to your objectives. And and what I will tell you is, there is absolutely talent. Um, I am on three public company boards. I, you know, I'm lucky enough to serve on a range of organizations from the High Line to the National Gallery of Art to Lincoln Center and the Committee to Protect Journalists. And over many years, the, the boards I've been on where I'm sometimes the only one, I've heard this refrain, oh, it's hard to find people. Um, that is patently false and has been proven so. At Ford, I was very intentional. Of my nine direct reports, the nine vice presidents, seven are women, five are women of color, Um, and I believe we have a terrific high-performing team and certainly based on uh, the review of my trustees recently who uh, concur with that, and i could be prouder uh, but there is no question that this is not about political correctness or quotas this is about performance and if you are intentional you will find the talent the talent is out there we don't have to wait a generation and i'm seeing it i mean i, I you know the sort of um uh, holy grail you know big uh, fortune 100 boards Uh, public company boards, which I I sit on three, um, um, all of a sudden, you know, we are able to find people of color and women. um, When for years, the retort was, oh, it's just really hard to find people. Um, It's not hard to find people. Uh, It is not hard to find talent. If you believe that through diversity, you will be a more effective and productive organization. And you don't have to believe that. The data tells you that. That's not not just um, a belief system of value. That is supported by the evidence. And so for so many people who I know who consider themselves data-driven, why then is it so hard to do what the data tells us is right and good for our organization.
1: I think you made such a powerful point, Darren, in terms of uh, the talent, the intentionality, and the data. And, you know, those are certainly points that we are pushing within our own network with a lot of amazing partners, women of color, advancing peace, security, and conflict transformation. Uh, Really, uh, there's just, There's no excuse, and and certainly the time, the hidebound excuses of not having the resources, I mean, certainly no one can afford not to at this point really um, make DEI a reality in in all of the work that we do. Uh, I have one last question for you, Darren, before we we go to our many questions coming in uh, from our online viewers. This is one, I I hope I don't put you on the spot, but you know, the the theme as I mentioned for this year is Pandemic's Peace and Justice, Shaping What Comes Next. Now, if you had to recommend one book for us to read this year, and if I might say not your own, uh, to help us better understand and shape what comes next, do you have one to commend to us?
0: Well, you know, it's an interesting um, question uh, it, it's it's not necessarily a book that uh, or that w- w- will will portends what comes next, right? But it is uh, it is it allows us to contextualize what has gotten us here or what has contributed to the challenge and how anchoring our understanding. Uh, will allow us to be liberated in a way. And so uh, there are a couple of books. Uh, I think uh, Paul Farmer's new book, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, uh, which is just out, is um, a great uh, book in terms of um, past as prologue and what Paul writes about from the Ebola crisis that we um, have learned and didn't learn um and and i think it's it's a it's a great book i also believe that isabel wilkerson's uh book cast is a a remarkable uh work of nonfiction, uh of just um an extraordinary uh deeply uh researched uh just lyrically written book on certainly for we americans um something that i think we would consider antithetical but that we in fact are a caste system in this country and um and she does um an exemplary job uh, of rigorously demonstrating uh, and identifying what a caste system looks like and is the components of that and then uh, dissecting uh, American history and present-day uh, society against that uh, benchmark of a caste, and concludes that we indeed are a caste, and so uh, a caste system. And so, to, as we go forward in this post-Corona virus world we have to ask ourselves, you know, how do we get from under this system? Um, uh, And certainly in the United States, something that um, my trustee, Brian Stevenson, and I and many others talk about a lot, which is a difficult thing to talk about, but it has to be if we're to really reconcile and heal in this country. And that is our legacy of white supremacy, um, which has, uh, had a tremendous toll on uh, undermining our democracy um, and uh, on contributing to uh, this this caste system, um, but also doing just incredible harm to especially people of color, and not just economic harm, um, but the psychic toll of being uh, educated, uh, both formally and informally, of this, this ideology of the supremacy, of this fiction, uh, this, this, th- these, these, the whole idea of, uh, of these categories was uh, manufactured in order to create these hierarchies. And we are living with these hierarchies, and they manifest in all of our systems, our structures, our policies, and overlaying on that the reality of class and classism, uh, it creates a very, very uh, challenging situation. Not one that is insurmountable, but in order to prevail over it, we've got to be able to
1: name it. So true. And I mean, what, what you describe really strikes the chord for me, uh, having grown up, been a family at the time recently immigrated from India, but grown up in the very recently desegregated South, myself. And I think uh, naming these realities are so critical to getting to that PC reality that that you've uh, inspired us uh, to strive for. Uh, With that in in mind, uh, you have inspired uh, many questions from our (laughs) Very international online audience. So, uh, if you wouldn't mind, if uh, I'd no, like I'd be to be happy to, those are right, of course. It. Yes, wonderful. So, the first one is um, this is a nice one, Darren. Uh, what advice do you have for young people, the next generation of change agents and philanthropists, in terms of creating and sustaining positive change in our communities and in our world?
0: Um, I think we have to be um, part of community, right? So I think part of what we have to do that we have to redress in this country, and I'm so inspired and hopeful because of young people. And in the United States, you and I as Americans have experienced this, this idea of freedom, of the uh, triumph of the individual, uh, mm-hmm. of these uh, uh, individualized um, ways of looking at the world. Um, and I believe absolutely uh, that that is right. But I also believe that we have to not just talk about freedom, but talk about responsibility and accountability to each other. Mm-hmm. And Talk about the collective will and the commonwealth and the public commons and young people. What we need is for young people to remind us of that because my generation read a little too much of Ayn Rand and uh, became just in my view, a little too enamored of the individual while losing sight of the community and our need to not only build individual wealth uh, and assets, which which has been the raison d'etre for many, many people of my generation, but we have not built uh, the common good and we have not done enough to contribute to and engage in the public commons and creating the and sustaining the public assets, and so I'm hopeful. When I hear young people and I do commencement addresses and spend time with these amazing young people at the Ford Foundation, they're talking about the common good, the commonwealth, um, the way in which we have a collective responsibility to each other. So I'm hopeful. Um, I am hopeful.
1: I'm so happy to hear that, and, and you really see that, I would say, Darren, in, in the young staff, youth peace builders in our network from all over the world uh, who are just so purpose-driven, but also um, really just so oriented towards that common good versus their own individual gain. And uh, day three of PeaceCon Wednesday, it's the fifth anniversary of the first ever UN Security Council resolution on youth peace and security And we're really going to use that occasion Mm. to try to um, build momentum five years later for what we hope will be a bipartisan Youth Peace and Security Act in next year's Congress, creating a global investment stream for youth peace building. You know, these uh, and
0: to talk to young people mm -hmm. about the uh, the noble calling it is to do the work of peace building. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I was a child, I remember John Kennedy, I remember so many leaders urging young people to seek peace in the world, to fight for justice, to see their life's work as fighting for the public interest. We have lost that, Uzra. We have lost that. And um, if we we proceed at our own peril if we don't have leaders talking to us about that and not marginalizing these ideas as something um, less that equates with something less than success Um, we can't have a successful uh, america a successful world if we don't have young people uh, our most precious assets committing and dedicating themselves to doing the kinds of work that your network members do.
1: Thank you so much for that. I think you've inspired our our youth audience uh, all over over the world. Uh, I want to turn to another question which states, um, as you've so eloquently stated, we must confront many existential challenges in our world today. Structural inequality, systemic racism, climate change, raising, rising levels of violence and extremism globally. Now, what keeps you optimistic and what are the stories of hope and resilience that you turn to?
0: Well, what keeps me optimistic in addition to the young people uh, is just reflecting on my own journey and reflecting on... Uh, the paths of people who came before you and I, who um, were confronted with far more horrendous uh, violence, uh, far more um, what I what I think of as uh, menacing. Um, um, barriers and they persevered and the way in which people a generation ago fought for justice knowing that in their own lifetimes they would likely not experience the fruits of their work and so when i think about people all over this world, when I think about people here in the United States who gave blood so that I could attend integrated schools, uh, so that I could uh, be uh, put on that uh, mobility escalator in this country. Imagine being Fannie Lou Hamer, a black sharecropper, who was never allowed a full education semi literate and yet she persevered in the pursuit of justice because she believed in america even though america clearly did not believe in her and she fought just as john lewis did just as so many others did. And so, you know, it's true that there are days when I am depressed, despondent, dejected by the mendacity, the cruelty, the greed and corruption I see from some leaders. But, I am inspired. I'm inspired by poetry. I'm inspired by the words of Langston Hughes, who in 1934 wrote a poem called Let America Be America Again. And the first stanza begins with, let America be America again. America never was America to me. But he ends the final stanza by saying, but oh yes, someday America will be. How did this man who was not allowed the dignity of walking in the front door of the fancy Park Avenue apartments he visited was not allowed to publish in certain publications because he was black. How could he believe in America? He was enraged and angry about the injustice he saw in this country, but he also was inspired. He was a believer, a patriot. And so for me, You know, Uzra, when you say, where do you find inspiration? We live with a level of privilege that our forebears, yours in India, mine in rural Louisiana, could never have imagined living with. And so the job for us is to not raise the ladder but to lower the rungs of that ladder to make sure that there is more opportunity for more people all over the world.
1: Just so inspiring, Darren. And I think you've uh, you just captured so well for all of us, you know, in, in these low points, how we can just draw inspiration from the resilience, the sacrifice, uh, the pride, the dignity of, of all those who, who made it possible for us to be where we are today. With, uh, with that in mind, I wanted to uh, turn to another question, uh, picking up on a point that you made uh, saying, I appreciate that Darren spoke of distortions of capitalism affecting peace and justice. What could policymakers do to address the incentives of surveillance capitalism that are driving the monetization, the monetization of hate and division?
0: We need policies, and we need. Uh, right, right now, we are seeing a contestation of democracy and capitalism and capitalism is winning in a democratic capitalist society democracy must come first if we know that the commodification and monetization of hate and division is undermining our democracy. We need policies to address that. And policymakers should be examining, should be crafting policies that uh, surgically address that reality. Um, and we part of the challenge for this is that in the public sector, we have not had the capacity. Uh, to actually take on um, the technology industry. Uh, And it's one of the reasons the Ford Foundation and MacArthur and others are supporting a new field of public interest technology, because there is a public interest in the world. That public interest in the space of technology has wholly been defined by private industry. And that has harmed uh, individual rights and it's harmed communities and it's harmed our democracy. So um, we need people who work um, in congressional offices and the e- at the EU and at other governing bodies, the AU, for example, to be capacitated with technologists and it's why the ford foundation supports the congressional tech interns program so that we don't have a situation like we had a couple of years ago that was comical and tragic at the same time when the zuckerberg hearings revealed the level of ignorance on the part of our policymakers around basic tenets of technology and it was because unlike in any other sphere of policy the environment financial services human rights development on a congressperson staff on a senate staff on a senate committee there are talented credentialed experts helping those Senators and Congress people make decisions, advising, giving them expertise and and expert counsel. There is not that capacity currently in Washington. It's all in Silicon Valley or in the private sector. right? So we need uh, in Washington people who bring those technology skills and that knowledge uh, to work on behalf of the public, of the public interest. And so that's how we get to getting the right policies. Um, And it's one of the reasons why this program is among the most important initiatives we're supporting at Ford.
1: Well, Darren, that is such an important thought, I think to, to close our opening day, in terms of just the need for all of us to support an assertive public interest and public policy with respect to technology. And we're certainly trying to do the same with peace building and have some incredible digital peace builders really sharing their knowledge and helping build capacity all over the world. So uh, I wanna offer you a very enthusiastic round of virtual applause, Darren. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much thank for Thank you. Azura it's been
0: such a treat for me. And when my friend Nancy Lindbergh asked me to do this, um, I didn't know that she would be joining me um, wow. as president of uh, the Packard Foundation. And so I was just um, on with her a few days ago, and she has made the transition to, to leading the Packard Foundation, but I know um, has been so proud of the work that she's done. Um, and that all of you um, who have partnered with her and um, it's just been really phenomenal. And I'm just grateful for this invitation. Thank you so much and congratulations to you.
1: Thank you so much, Taryn, and, and thank you for, for mentioning the incredible legacy of Nancy Lindborg at USIP. And today we open PeaceCon with her new successor, Lise Grand. Uh, I wanna thank you again, all your colleagues at Ford Foundation for everything you do Thank the USIP team, all 70 plus of our speakers, and our 1,800 plus registrants for really making opening day one, one for the record record books uh, for PeaceCon. So I just wanted to remind all of our registrants that we have one more regional monitoring and evaluation learning session in Spanish with no translation, so we can all brush off our Spanish with uh, Latin and South American peacebuilding experts starting now at 5 p.m. Construir paz en tiempo de COVID, America Latina frente a la crisis, apologies for my Spanish. And uh, for you early birds on the East Coast uh, and the West Coast, we have more regional monitoring and evaluation learning sessions for Asia at 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time tomorrow and for the Middle East, it's 7 a.m. tomorrow with our plenary. Tomorrow at 9 a.m. sharp, focused on women, peace, and security. Thank you again. Hasta mañana. Muchas gracias, Darren. And uh, really appreciate everything you're doing for a more just and peaceful world.
0: Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org podcasts you.